Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins with North Christian Church. Today we have another great, fantastic message from God the Holy Spirit. And we're calling it Grace Under Fire. Let's bow our heads and open up in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible gift of time. And thank you so much for your patience with us, Father, as we walk this walk that you've given us to walk, Father. We're just so grateful for the opportunity to gather together this way, to fellowship, to break bread, the very bread of life, Father, to study this word that you've given us, that your spirit has authored for our edification, Father. What a wonderful time this is we live in. What a wonderful place to be in our souls, Father, as a result of your grace. We do pray for those in the congregation that are still at a level of discomfort or ill or what have you, Father. We just pray that they know that we're with them in spirit and that this message find its way to them. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to them and we just, again, pray for their comfort. We also pray for those in this world that are still lost, Father, that are without hope without your son. We are most grateful and thankful for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time like this even a time to rejoice, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this message and may it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message is titled Grace Under Fire. Hopefully you got the last message from Thursday that was titled at the end of the day, It's All About Grace. Fantastic way to end an 80-part series on the Lord is our confidence. Uh, if you've been keeping up with the messages, as you certainly should be, you know that on Thursday, again, the Spirit rounded the corner with us and has finished up his divine good work on the Lord is our confidence. And I just want to do a little review of that transition. And for the record, like anything in life, I guess we'd be remiss if we simply picked up and moved on abruptly. Uh, without any reflection on such a lengthy series, The Lord is Our Confidence, 80 parts, folks. We should take pause. And I'm so grateful that the Spirit gives us this time to do so. Up here on the board, this came out on Thursday. 80 messages is a lot more than 80 hours. We cannot look at it that way. Don't pigeonhole a curriculum into 80 messages only. If it takes a shepherd hours to compress a message into a single hour, it'll take hours for his sheep to decompress it. The great analog that we were given on Thursday <clears throat> is what we've got in the Holy Bible. Shall we suppose that a single reading of the Bible, and I know some of you even use a you know read the Bible to me app, are we to suppose that a single reading of the Bible will suffice in terms of gaining all the wisdom that's packed into it? That's astronomically silly to even suggest, right? Well, along those same lines, isn't it likewise ridiculous to think that you can hear a message from a pulpit like this one 
and expect to gain all the wisdom from it inside of the one hour it takes you to listen to it? That's the very definition of folly, my friends. Again, the point on the board, 80 messages is a lot more than 80 hours. If it takes a shepherd an hour, hours to compress a message into a single hour, it takes hours for a sheep to decompress it. 11 months ago, we started that series on the Lord is our conference, uh, confidence. Excuse me. And you know what? The back of napkin calculation is that's 8,000 hours roughly of living. That's the real figure we ought to be thinking about here because that's the way God sees it. We are on a curriculum that extends far beyond the classroom. As I wrote once in a blog titled MASH up here on the board back on April 4th of 2016, the objective of the local church is to equip soldiers for the heat of battle. Going to church should have a real purpose that extends far beyond merely building up oneself. It should have the greater purpose of equipping believers with the gospel and encouraging them to go out and serve it up in the trenches. That blog continues up here on the board. When Paul wrote I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in 2 Timothy 4.7. He wasn't writing as just a shepherd who tended to the war-torn souls of Jesus' disciples. He was writing about having gone out to the front lines himself as commanded. And he continues in that thread in this blog. He was conveying that being left here on earth after salvation implies a fight. That is why we are here, my friends, not to hide in churches, merely dressing each other with bandages, but to gird our loins and take the gospel out to a lost and dying world. As that same blog concluded, the Christian soldier's mission is outside the church where the doctrines the Spirit teaches us through messages like this one are actually put to use in the world. A perfect current example was highlighted in this week's blog, which was titled Crisis, the Hysterics, and the Gnostics. You know, look at it this way. Crisis, and as I said in the blog, it doesn't matter if it's real or perceived, Everyone's perceptions differ, so we can't judge. Remember that. Crisis is a believer's time to shine. Drill that into your head. Crisis is a believer's time to shine, not become a wet noodle or a puffed up moron. Crisis is a believer's time to shine. We're going to close this message on this very topic. So keep this in mind throughout. Crisis is a believer's time to shine the way Christ did. The way Christ did. It's not a time to become a wet noodle in hysterics or a puffed up moron thinking you're in the know. Consider our prototype, Jesus Christ. His life is the very pivot point for the greatest crisis we've ever known. That we are born spiritually dead and without any hope except for saving grace. 
during this crisis he had, during his very lifetime, was Jesus ever hysterical? Nope. Was he ever puffed up with knowledge? Nope. What was he then? He was as we ought to be during times of crisis, totally stable. Listen, stability is a function of faith, my friends. Let that sink in. Stability is a function of faith, my friends. Faith is a function of grace, as we know. For even Jesus learned doctrines from the Word of God as he grew up. Now, I really need you to concentrate here because you can't afford to miss the principles I'm about to present to you. Especially if you found yourself between the crosshairs of God the Holy Spirit while reading this week's blog. Especially you. I need you to first think about Jesus. There's one thing he never did during his lifetime that relates directly to what we just pondered. Up here on the board, Jesus never feared. Jesus never feared. Hold that thought. Jesus never feared. Rather, he had faith. In fact, instead of fear, he also had perfect peace. Right? He never feared. He had faith. Instead of fear, he had peace. Isn't that what he desires to give us? Indeed. Then why all the hysterics and the Gnostics? Concentrate. By grace, through faith, that's the way of Jesus, versus fear. First, faith is a grace gift. During a crisis, a person with faith isn't hysterical because they trust in God's promise to protect them. Nor are they Gnostic, supposing to be, quote, in the know, because they trust their ignorance is, by design, a God-given estate. Faith produces peace. Lack of it produces fear that leads to folly. Again, by grace through faith versus fear. Faith is a grace gift. During a crisis, a person with faith isn't hysterical because they trust in God's promise to protect them. That's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is that nor are they Gnostic, supposing to be, you know, in the know. Because they trust their ignorance is, by design, a God-given estate. Faith produces peace. Lack of it produces fear. That leads to folly. Now, you might be saying to yourselves, I understand the fear you speak of regarding someone who's hysterical. Um, that's overt, right? But I'm struggling to see it as it pertains to the puffed up person. As I've taught you multiple times in the past, God is opposed to the proud. And there is no fear in the sphere of God's love. Which means, practically speaking, that an arrogant person 
is a fearful person. An arrogant person is a fearful person. They abide in that sphere. Fear is the thing that drives people to folly, like I described, say, in the blog. Fear is that thing that drives people to folly, whether hysterics or Gnosticism. But I tend to agree with those of you who struggle with the second aspect of the point on the board. It's more difficult to, quote, see the root fear in someone who's beating their chest, proclaiming special knowledge regarding the things of God. Here's an excerpt from this week's blog regarding folks who, in their arrogance, abide in fear. McDonald on 1 Timothy 6.4, uh, these men are not spiritually healthy. And instead of teaching healthful words, as in the previous verse, they teach words that produce sick saints. They raise various questions that are not spiritually edifying. Think about that. They raise various questions that are not spiritually edifying. Since the things they talk about are not matters of Bible doctrine, there is no way of settling them decisively. As a result, their teaching stirs up envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. What's, what's the point McDonald's making here? It's the same one I made in this week's blog and what the Spirit's amplifying again in this message. I'll give you Deacon Johnson's perspective on all of this after reading the blog up here in the board. He said, human nature always wants to be, quote, in the know. So if we can place ourselves in what we want to believe as correct, the arrogance takes over and God's promises go out the window. <laughs> it's a very astute thing for him to say. Again, human nature always wants to be in the know. So if we can place ourselves in what we want to believe is correct, the arrogance takes over and God's promises go out the window. And just so you know, here was my response to him up here on the board. I said, well said. Meanwhile, the rest of the flock is disturbed and injured. Seems pretty selfish to boot. That's exactly how I look at it. That's exactly how I look at it. Meanwhile, the rest of the flock is disturbed and injured while someone is attempting to assert themselves as being, quote, in the know. Seems pretty selfish to boot. So look, here's the point the Spirit's making here. And I need you to keep concentrating. This is really important. Up here on the board, the fruit of arrogance an arrogant person will always find themselves estranged from the peace of God, whether hysterical or Gnostic. This estrangement results in fear. We just spent 80 parts on confidence. If you want to lose your confidence, if you want to live in fear, depart from God. Become arrogant. Move away from God. Move away from Holy Scripture. Move away from the actual doctrines that God gives us. And stay away from that area that's all gray and muddy and speculative and inventive and all these other things. Stay away from all that stuff. It's not fruitful. And you're hurting yourself and others when you venture over there. 
That's the fruit of arrogance. An arrogant person will always find themselves estranged from the peace of God, whether hysterical or Gnostic. This estrangement results in fear. Let me give you one more angle into this truth. And I truly hope you're grateful with what you're being given right now. For as Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. I'll give you an excerpt from my book titled Covert Arrogance up here on the board. Covert Arrogance, Hiding Out in Plain Sight. It's downloadable on the, on the uh, website, of course. Been there for years now. The subsection I'm referring to is called Arrogance Hates Being Judged. Arrogant people hate being judged. Why? Because their greatest fear is that they will fail to measure up. That's the problem. That's arrogance. It sounds silly if you understand and have faith in the most fundamental aspects of Scripture. But the point is, again, on the board, I wrote a whole book about this, folks. This is not news to any of us. Arrogance hates being judged. Arrogant people hate being judged. Maybe they want, maybe they, they, they need, they need to be that person in the know. I got to be that person in the know. That's my, that's my reputation. I've got to uphold this reputation of being super intellectual. It's garbage. It's arrogance. They're, they're fearful behind it all. That's what the Bible teaches us. What's the problem? Arrogant people hate being judged. Why? Because their greatest fear is that they will fail to measure up. It's really silly when you think about it from God's perspective. So we have our answer, my friends, to the question that stumps us. Why is it more difficult to see the root of fear in a chest beater type of individual? It's because, unlike the hysterical, whose fear is over it, this person's arrogance is covert. And as I write at length about this topic in this book, covert arrogance is the hardest type to identify because, well, it's covert. Arrogant people are insecure people by nature. And insecure people tend to hide behind loud proclamations regarding this or that. In other words, the, you know, the greatest defense is a great offense, as they say. But the truth is, arrogant people are insecure people. Why? Because God doesn't secure them. Does that make sense? So they're insecure by nature. And insecure people tend to hide behind loud proclamations regarding, you choose what it is. The key point for this message is simple. Up here on the board, arrogance and fear. Arrogant people live in fear because... That's what self-righteousness does to a person. It forces them to rely on their own resources, you know, as opposed to God's grace, which is given to the humble, James 4, 6. Again, arrogant people live in fear because that's what self-righteousness does to a person. It forces them to rely on their own resources for strength and confidence and peace, etc., etc. And yet, at the end of the day, they always fail to measure up. Self-reliant, always failing. Viewed through a godly lens, we quickly see that arrogance is like a type of self-induced torture even. It's awful. Arrogance puts us on a treadmill that never stops. 
I just had a visual come to mind. I hope you don't mind me sharing it. Imagine a mouse on a treadmill with a piece of cheese just outside of reach, you know, through the cage of the treadmill. Hopefully you can visualize it. The, the mouse is going a mile a minute on that treadmill and it's a cage so they can see through. They can even smell the cheese, but the cheese is just outside in front of the treadmill. And then imagine a mouse beside the treadmill that can simply walk right up to the cheese and begin enjoying the fruit of their labor. The arrogant person is like the mouse on the treadmill, running harder and harder and never making it to their intended destination. The humble person is like the second mouse that, while enjoying the cheese, a.k.a. the fruit of humility, looks back upon the mouse on the treadmill and says, why not just get off the treadmill, treadmill my friend? <laughs> All right, let's venture back now to our instigating principle again. By grace through faith versus fear. Faith is a grace gift. During a crisis, a person with faith isn't hysterical because they trust in God's promise to protect them, nor are they Gnostics, opposing to be in the know, because they trust their ignorance is, by design, a God-given estate. Faith produces peace. Lack of it produces fear that leads to falling. I love that the Spirit has given us all this grace gift of wisdom. I'm, I love it. Like I said in the blog, I, I, I like, it's an inconvenience to go through what we're going through, um, but it, it, it forces us, it, it forces us to get to a place by God's grace to realize certain things about ourselves. My prayer is that none of you will be so arrogant to ignore what he's been saying to us. Just remember this, that God has a plan, and that plan has practical fruit that comes to bear. It's true, we humans love to suppose we are, you know, spiritual giants, and, the, and then the Spirit comes along and squeezes us like a pimple, and all the ugly oozes right out of us. And the humble say, ooh, that's kind of gross. The arrogant act like the burst pimple just spilled out a little vanilla ice cream. <laughs> For the record, just so you're not getting, uh, you know, you're not back on your haunches, so to speak. My words exactly to someone in the congregation this week was, hey, we all have a little bit of everything I wrote about in the blog in us. That's my way of saying, don't shoot the messenger. I'd like to share an email now I received from one of my favorite people on planet Earth, and yet I've yet to meet this person. Pastor Joshua Mokua wrote the following to me after reading this week's newsletter, uh, including the blog, of course. He said, thanks, sir. Uh, we are under good care, under the arms of the Lord. God is in control, and COVID-19 is a small thing. There are calamities which befell man in days past, but all came to pass. Volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, wars, diseases, all these are checks and balances. Man, if not controlled, can do terrible things to himself and others. Why are people making weapons? Because they have constant fear of attack. No wonder you said they are wise morons. 
Why does God require, what does God require of us? Service to him and our fellow man. Please take that as wisdom. Please take that as wisdom. What does God require of us? Service to him and our fellow man. When Alexander the Great was about, this is him continuing, when Alexander the Great was about to die, he realized the following. One, that doctors do not give life, so he said they had to carry his coffin when, when he died. Number two, he ordered for his coffin to have two holes in the sides where his arms could protrude out, showing that he has nothing. Number three, he ordered for his spoils of war to be spread along the road like refuse. And number four, finally he said to what he said that what you do for yourself will perish with you the day you die, but what you do for others will remain. Why are people parading to show their weapons of war? Of course, to threaten others. Suppose it was a small country which is supported or supposed to have hatched COVID-19 in a lab. What do you think would have happened to it? The president of that country would have been hanged. God wants us to be obedient. Corona has made many people to recognize there is a God. God bless you, Joshua Mokua. You know, I'm so grateful for this man's constant encouragement. The fact of the matter is I get more encouragement from him than pretty much, I would say, the vast majority of my own congregation, which I don't know what to say. You can take that for what it's worth. But nonetheless, I'm so grateful for this man's constant encouragement. I don't know, maybe it's because he too is a pastor and has that same type of heart towards others as I do. And I don't mean to sound aloof or exclusionary here, just sharing my thoughts along. In any case, I hope, I just hope you appreciate and are encouraged by his words as I am. I want to share one other piece of wisdom with you now. And while we don't have the time to ferret out all the Holy Scripture in support of it, I'd encourage you to make the effort to do so on your own time. I want you I want to first give you this leadership perspective. And I realize that not everyone hearing my voice here is a leader the way I've been called to be, or Pastor Mokua, for example. But as the spirits taught us in the past, we're all leaders in one capacity or another. So please listen up. The first principle I want to give you is this. Up here on the board, don't miss this. Be patient. Observe. In other words, shut up, shut your mouth, stop, be patient, and observe. Do not be hasty in your judgments, just so you can be the one, quote, in the know. Who is that about, anyways? Who is it about? Do not be hasty in your judgments, just so you can be the one in the know. Who is that about, anyways? So-called, quote, quick-wittedness is often among the greatest follies of all, and it injures the most people. Avoid being the fool in the end. This, my friends, is wisdom. Again, be patient, observe. Go to James 1.16 with me. James 1.16. I'm going to grab a drink of water here. James 1 verse 16. Avoid being the fool in the end, my friends. 
James 1.16. Again, be patient, observe. This is some of the best wisdom I can give you as a 51-year-old pastor who's been through the crucible a few times himself. Uh, James 1.16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. Listen, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I want to just pull out that first phrase from verse 19. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. My friends, I cannot stress the importance of James' words here enough. Again, what's the point on the board? Be patient. Observe. No one's going to be, uh, you know, missing out without your so-called wisdom on the subject. Do not be hasty in your judgments just so you can be the one in the know. Who is that about, anyways? So-called quick-wittedness is often among the greatest follies of all. And this is what concerns me as a shepherd. It injures the most people. Nonetheless, avoid being the fool in the end. This is wisdom. We just saw it. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Okay, here's where the rubber hits the road for some of you. The last part of this message is dedicated to you wannabe prophets out there who run around disturbing the body of Christ with your moronic efforts to assert yourselves as authorities on the things of God. Up here on the board, I'm not asking. Stop it now. This is your warning. If you're in my congregation and I catch any more wind of this kind of garbage being communicated to my flock, whether it's live, phone, text, email, video suggestions, etc., I will promptly, you trust me on this, I will promptly be removing you from my congregation. If you disagree with what the Spirit's saying here, and you're not willing to bear that kind of shame, then please remove yourself now and do us all a favor. Okay, enough said. To you I say, let the Lord's ordained shepherds shepherd the flock. Let the Lord's ordained shepherds shepherd the flock. And since I'm the only one assigned to this congregation as of now, that's me. Capiche? I hope so. And to any of you who have been the receiver of these types of communications, I ask that you let me know immediately so I can protect you from it. Okay, again, with that said, I want to read one more passage of Scripture before we close. And this passage speaks directly to this final theme the Spirit's put on the table for us. 
And it really is something that Pastor Mokua mentioned in the email I shared with you earlier about how God uses times like this. These are, to me, these are very exciting times. With the right perspective, we're delivered. We bring glory to God. How God uses times like this to bring certain things about himself to bear. And that was something Pastor Makua mentioned. So I want to read it together and see what the Spirit's getting at here. And before we jump into the, the, the passage, as we're reading this thing, think about the times we live in and the fact that this COVID-19 lockdown or whatever you want to call it has come under scrutiny by many. Okay, I want you to think about this that this these times we live in think about that pimple right this time we live in this COVID-19 lockdown whatever you want to call it it's come under scrutiny by many well the truth of the matter is that some really smart statisticians did a fine job of protecting our healthcare infrastructure from imploding that's it I for one am grateful for their efforts in fact even if I disagreed with their strategy or some of their tactics, let's say, right? It's easy to always throw stones at leaders. Even if I disagreed with their strategy or some of their tactics, the Bible has something to say about God's choice of leadership in this world. Imagine that. The Bible has something to say about God's choice of leadership in this world. Remember, God has ordained every authority that exists in this world. Let's read about this. Go to 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Again, let's read about what the Bible has to say about those in charge, about governments, about we as servants, if you would, or citizens of our government. 1 Timothy 6, verse 1. Very clearly stated scripture, clearly stated doctrine, uh, really irrefutable, no gray. These are the things we're supposed to focus on. 1 Timothy 6, 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. And this includes whether the masters are believers even or not. There's no distinction being made here. This is about those who govern us. What is he saying? Let all who are under that, under those God-ordained leaders, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor. So that, why? You might say, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're crooked, they're blah, 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 they're, they're evil, they're blah. Okay, so that, why do that thing? Get beyond yourself, you fool. Get beyond yourself. I know that's a stretch for some of you with your big mouths. Get beyond yourself just for a moment so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. How about that? It's not about you, you fools. It's about God who ordained those authorities. Have we forgotten? Oh, and by the way, for context's sake, Paul was encouraging a bunch of slaves that were under similar conditions as those slaves 
in America we most often think about in our own country's history. That's, that was part of his audience. What was the point of enduring the suffering then? Was it to stir up a revolution in the hearts of the slaves? Was it to disturb them, to unsettle them, to stir up strife in the hearts of the slaves? Or was it to use their situation as a vehicle to bring glory to God? Was it to stir up a revolution in the hearts of the slaves? Or was it to use their situation as a vehicle to bring glory to God? Of course, it's the latter. So, what say some of you? Listen, please. What say some of you who have been made, making a big stink over your God-ordained government's right to rule over you and make laws that it deems necessary to protect its citizens. What say you? Have you brought glory to God during this time? Are you too concerned about bringing glory to yourself, like the Gnostics? Have you brought glory to God during this time? Who is it about, by the way? Or have you brought his good name dishonor by becoming a, I don't know, a conspiracy theorist? Proclaiming the health care authorities are all evil and the government is the boogeyman. What does the Holy Bible have to say about all of this? We literally just read it. This is not conjecture. This is not Ed Collins, by the way. 1 Timothy 6.1 let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that, in case you're wondering, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Let's continue. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. What do you think I'm doing? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, and we just read about this godliness in verses 1 and 2, what about this person? He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving. And Strong's has that Greek word as mentally or spiritually diseased. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. But here's the thing. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay, stop there. What's the spirit driving home here? Well, it really ought to be obvious by now, but if not, let me help summarize this for you. And just so you know, this isn't some kind of a beatdown, although some of you do really have a lot to think about. Uh, this is the very same thing that the Spirit emphasized on Thursday. It's called grace. It's called grace. 
The Spirit's trying to get your heads on straight. <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. Again, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I'll give you this in closing from MacArthur on this word contentment in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Up here on the board, this Greek word means self-sufficiency and was used by Stoic philosophers to describe a person who was unflappable and unmoved by external circumstances. Here's the point. Christians are to be satisfied and sufficient. What did the Bible say about sufficiency? My grace is sufficient for you. Remember that? That's where we get our sufficiency from. Christians ought to be satisfied and sufficient by grace and not to seek for more than what God has already given them. You can think about the time we live in right now. Perfect example. Do not seek for more than what God has given them. Do I know, am I going to stand here behind a pulpit as an honest man of God and say I know exactly why this is all going on? You want me to join the ship of fools? I won't do it. Because you know what? I don't know. And thank God for that. I'm glad he hasn't told me. I really don't want to know. I just want to have faith. I want to have peace. You see the difference between my attitude and the attitude that the Spirit just brought out? Christians ought to be satisfied and sufficient by grace and not to seek for more than what God has already given them. He is the source of true contentment. And I'll leave this up to you to do your own research. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, 9, 8, Philippians 4, 11, 13, and verse 19. So in closing, I hope you see why the Spirit has authored both this week's blog and this particular message. Consider it a grace gift to you, my friends, given through an anointed under-shepherd. In order that, with humility in your heart, you may be set free by it. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this incredible privilege to study the truth in the Word of God, Father. Thank you for setting us free by it. Thank you for always being faithful to us, even when it stings a bit, Father. Thank you, for we know that you have our highest and best in view, Father. We know that you love us. We know that it is by grace through faith that you sanctify us. For these things, we are eternally grateful, Father. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls and our homes even, Father. And your will be done, maybe out to the world somehow, Father, that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.